The church is a big deal to God, and it needs to be a bigger deal to us. This fall, we're looking at the church. We've been calling this series of sermons Church Mechanics. We're popping the hood on the church. And this morning is week two on the topic of church leadership. Our plan this morning is to work our way through all of chapter three, but I'd like to begin at the end. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 reads, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I'm from a family of all boys. My uncle had boys. My first child was a boy. I just figured that Adams is birth boys. I was sure that our second child would also be a boy. But when the eagle landed and I started counting appendages and I couldn't find the 11th toe, it dawned on me this was a girl. I was so shocked. I mean, a little girl was certainly a change of pace for me. But now I know I would have missed out on a whole lot of life had I not had a daughter. My boys are so predictable. I can anticipate, anticipate what they're going to think before they even think it. I know what's going to come out of their mouth before they clear their throat. But my princess, oh my, she always surprises me. She is an intriguing mystery. I never know what will make her laugh. She'll smile and giggle at strange times. I can only guess what's in the mind of a little girl. A daughter is a wonderful mystery. Her mystique spices up a dad's life. But a few years ago, it changed for me again. Daddy's princess once more surprised me. She brought home a boy that she said she wanted to marry. And again, I was shocked. What did I do wrong? How did this happen? I mean, I'm supposed to turn my little girl over to a boy who up until that point, his only significant job in life had been feeding the neighbor's dog when they went on vacation? Why would my daughter want to replace me with a pretend man? Once again, this was a mystery. And my wife was such a help. She sat me down. She explained to me. She said, Sandy, what Natalie sees in Jonathan is as mysterious as what I saw in you. So deal with it. <laughs> Today when I see them, I smile, but it still smarts. And when it finally sunk in that Natalie was serious about this marriage business, man, I got serious about this so-called man. I spent a year quizzing him and checking him out. I left no stone unturned. I had a checklist longer than the Jiffy Lube. To care for my princess, this man would have to pass muster. And this is how Paul feels about the gospel and the church that it births. Paul was as smitten with the church and with the gospel as I am with my daughter. Verse 9 mentions the mystery of the faith. Verse 16, the mystery of godliness. You see, godliness is full of mystery. The surprise of grace. The simplicity of faith. 
the mystical yet powerful reality of the new birth, it all combines to save us for eternity. This makes the gospel the envy of the angels. This makes the church the darling of heaven. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And Paul refuses to turn such mysteries over to just anybody. So what if a man sashays into the church and calls himself a pastor? God is as impressed with titles as I was when that boy I barely knew said he loved my daughter. Words and titles don't mean squat. To handle God's infallible word and to lead the blood-bought bride of Christ, a leader has to pass muster. And God, too, has an extremely exhaustive checklist for a church leader. It's about as long as the one promised by the Jiffy Lube technician. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the 40-point inspection that God uses to measure up a leader. Now, we mentioned last week the qualifications for church leadership, that they fall into three categories. Giftedness, gender, and character. Paul discusses the subject of spiritual giftedness elsewhere. He tackles gender in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But above all, God's priority for a church leader is character. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's little mention of talent. Skill might make you useful, but it doesn't qualify you to handle the gospel and to lead the church. A flair for what you do is a plus, but it has to belong to folks that God can use over time. In the long run, aptitude without character does more harm than good. You see, here's a huge problem in today's church. Church attenders are more impressed with ability than they are integrity. The entertaining personality, the clever presenter, the celebrity spokesman attracts a larger crowd than the faithful servant. This shouldn't be. We like pastors with bling. Righteousness is just not as sexy. And over and over we see this happen again and again. A church overlooks a leader's indiscretions because he fills the seats or because he entertains the crowd. And they put all of Christianity at risk. Inevitably, it blows up. And souls get hurt in the wreckage. Churches today won't engage in characters. God insists on character in its leaders. God is never pleased when a church sells its birthright for a bowl of talent. Through the centuries, Christians have argued over the proper structure for church government. These debates have spawned entire denominations. But here's our mistake. We're rigid when it comes to form while we make all kinds of concessions on the qualifications. You see, the New Testament does just the opposite. The structure stays flexible, but the caliber of men is never compromised. You see, the most biblical structure is worthless unless the leaders are godly. The church is the only ship sailing to heaven. The captain and crew need to be folks the passengers can trust with their lives. A man can look good under the stage lights, but is he the same person off duty when no one but God sees? You see, a church leader should never be out of character. Well, 1 Timothy 3 begins 
this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, in the New Testament, three terms are used to identify church leaders. Bishop, elder, and pastor. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll find that all three terms are used interchangeably. In Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Peter chapter 5, they're applied to the same man, all three terms. You see, elder speaks of a leader's age, or in Timothy's case, his maturity. Bishop, as we talked about last week, means overseer. It describes what the man does, his ministry. Pastor, or shepherd, same word, applies to his methods. He shepherds God's flock. Whatever title you use, to serve in God's household is an honor. It's a joy. Of course, if you want a cushy job, you shouldn't be a pastor. I mean, it's long hours. The job is never finished. As a pastor or an elder, you're always on call. You live in a fishbowl, and often there's a cat staring right at you. Leadership, you see, is work, but Paul calls it a good work. We need men who aspire to leadership, who know the job description and yet still rise to the challenge. And here's the cut of cloth that the church is looking for in its leaders. We're told a bishop then must be blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. We're all going to slip up in sin, but we repent quickly and we make amends and we move on. You know, sometimes a leader isn't necessarily sinful, he's just reckless. He plays fast and loose with appearances. His conduct risks the church's reputation. A leader should avoid indiscretions that cast a questionable cloud. See, this Greek term translated blameless means nothing to take hold on. There should be no glaring issues with how I live that an outsider can point his finger at and use to question the validity of what I preach. Here's the litmus test for a leader. Are there current issues in my life that discredit the message I preach or the Savior I serve or the church that I represent? There's a scene in in the movie, Eight Men Out, that haunts me. I think about this scene often. The movie's about the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Eight Chicago White Sox players combined to throw the World Series that year. The scene that I'm referring to shows the great shoeless Joe Jackson. He's leaving a building. He's sworn by reporters, and they're shouting at him, What did you do, Joe? Were you in on the fix? Suddenly, a a little boy's voice rises above the din of the crowd. He's about 10 years old. Everything else in the scene goes silent. And all you can hear is this little boy. He looks up at his hero and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Joe just turns and walks away in shame. I don't want to ever have a little boy look up at me and say, Say it ain't so, Pastor Sandy. Say it ain't so. Once St. Francis was walking down the street... A young man, he reached up from the bushes and grabbed his coat and tugged on his coat. He said, please, sir, be as good as we think you are. Hey, we can and should encourage and warn folks not to put a pastor on a pedestal. But some will do it anyway. Why shouldn't they have leaders that they can respect? 
Well, a bishop also must be the husband of one wife. And this is a phrase that gets hotly debated. One group says that the phrase bans polygamists from leading the church. Other folks insist that the verse bars a widower or a bachelor from pastoral ministry. If that was the case, then Paul would probably be disqualifying himself. Other interpretations eliminate men who are divorced and remarried. I don't think any of these interpretations really get at the heart of the matter. A literal interpretation of this Greek phrase, the husband of one wife, would be a one-woman man. This is what God wants in a bishop or a pastor or an elder, to be a one-woman man. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he writes this, We speak of the Airedale as a one-man dog. It is his nature to become attached to only one man. It's the bishop's nature to isolate and centralize his love toward one woman. If a man has an eye for the ladies, if he's a flirt, he shouldn't be a pastor. The phrase isn't as much about marital status as it is moral stature. And here's the irony. A man can be married to the same woman for 40 years. And not necessarily be a one-woman man. A fascination with pornography or a wandering, roaming eye can disqualify a man from ministry in God's eyes. Whereas a man who was divorced and then remarried, yet repented and has allowed God to renew his mind, now that man may have the integrity to be a leader. Understand how you're supposed to use this chapter. This is a very, very practical chapter. God gave you 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a reason. Understand how you're supposed to use this chapter. It's a checklist for you. You see, you, anytime you observe a leader, you pull out this checklist. And you look at the qualifications. Then you look at the life of the man that you're examining. And you see if they match up. So, when a pastor in Conyers comes out and says that he's a homosexual and encourages you to forget that he's been divorced twice, and says that God approves of his sexual orientation, then you need to pull out 1 Timothy chapter 3 and check the list. Well, wait a minute. You know, it says right here in verse 2, husband of one wife. You don't even have to know Greek to figure out that unrepentant homosexual and husband of one wife are not compatible. That means that an unrepentant homosexual shouldn't be allowed to lead the church that Jesus died to save. But Pastor Sandy, that's so judgmental. And you're absolutely right. 1 Timothy 3 is in the Bible for this purpose. To arm you with discernment so that you can make these kinds of judgments. You need to. Your spiritual health and life depend on it. You see, like my daughter, the bride of Christ is too precious to be turned over to just anybody. The wrong people need to be weeded out of church leadership. And no one should be immune from biblical scrutiny. A church leader is never more important than the church that he serves. The man's feelings are inconsequential compared to the church's reputation. God knows bad stuff will happen when people follow the wrong leaders. And so he arms us with this checklist. The checklist goes on. The elders should be temperate or literally self-controlled. You know, they say that a boxer loses the fight once he loses his temper. 
I mean, once he gets angry, once he loses his temper, he loses the fight. You know, it's also true of a leader. Once you become impulsive, once the emotions take over, you, you tend to lose. For a leader, there should be no knee-jerk reactions, no half-baked plans. Godly leadership should flow out of God's rest, not our restlessness. You see, a good leader thinks, then he acts. He doesn't have to undo a lot of poor decisions. At times, the best decision is the decision you didn't make. Next in the list is sober-minded. This is a man who can think clearly. This is the man who remembers that his perspective is not the only way to see a situation, and at times he can be wrong. He maintains his objectivity. I love this quote. I have a viewpoint. You have a viewpoint. But God has view. Only God has 20-20 foresight. And wise leaders seek God's perspective. A leader should also be of good behavior. In other words, he's appropriate for the situation. When it's time to have fun, he has fun. But when it's time to be serious, he gets serious. A leader is also hospitable. A pastor needs to be friendly. He should be big-hearted. Leaders are people with expanding circles. They're not cliquish. They're not always circling the wagons, trying to solidify their influence over their own tight-knit group. No, they're concerned about the new folks in the fellowship who need to be invited, who need to become a part. Pastors and elders must also be able to teach. This doesn't mean that an elder is going to necessarily be a dynamic public speaker, but he does need the ability to unpack spiritual truths accurately and in a way folks that can understand. I mean, if you need to know how to get to heaven, the elders should be able to give you directions. It's been said a good teacher puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can grab them. Church leaders need to be good communicators. And then we're told that the elder is not to be given to wine. Verse 8 tells us that the deacon is not given to much wine. But the elder is a teetotaler. You see, unlike a deacon, an elder is a decision maker. And he can be called on at a moment's notice to render a judgment. I mean, we can't take the chance of his senses being dulled or his mind being foggy. How would you like to call your pastor in the middle of the night for some counseling? And he'd be drunk. Or he'd be a little sauced or tipsy. How would you like that? Again, would you want the smell of alcohol on the breath of the man who's driving your daughter around town? I don't think so. And likewise, neither does God want alcohol in the breath of those leading in the church. Elders shouldn't drink at all. And yet I can hear the complaint by some. Pastor Sandy, the New Testament teaches that every believer has the right to drink in moderation. Rights, did you say? You want to be an elder and you're worried about your rights? Get over it, man. This is leadership. Leaders forego their rights for the glory of God and for the good of others. If one person stumbles because of a beer in my hand or because of a glass of wine on the table or sees me check out an R-rated movie, then shame on me. Church leaders should be as good as the people think we are. Don't be violent. A church leader doesn't manipulate or push people around. He's not a spiritual bully. He leads by love and gentle persuasion. And neither should a pastor or elder be greedy for money. 
Once there was a toddler playing in the living room floor, and the little guy found a quarter stuck in the carpet. Well, as toddlers do, he put it in his mouth, started sucking on it, and eventually swallowed the quarter. Well, Dad saw it, and he yelled to his wife in the other room, said, Honey, quick, call the pastor. Well, the wife said, Pastor, that's strange. Shouldn't I call 911? And the man answered, No, call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. You know, it's sad when churches and pastors have gotten the reputation for being all about the money. I mean, this is why we don't pass a plate at Calvary Chapel. We limit it to the box at the door. It's not that we don't need your monetary support. It's that you need to see us trusting the same God that we ask you to trust. Well, don't be violent and greedy. Instead, be gentle, not quarrelsome. I've heard it put, a troublemaker is a guy who rocks the boat, then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. (laughs) A man with an argumentative or a combative personality disqualifies himself for, uh, for the role of a leader. Neither should we be covetous. You know, envy shouldn't be found in the heart of a spiritual leader. For me... It's not really as big a temptation to envy the neighbor's car or house or salary as it is to envy a neighboring pastor's growing church or large budget or nice new facility. We need to guard our hearts against envy. Jealousy can poison our ministry. Verse 4 says that an elder should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. You know, you can be a good lawyer and, and be a bad husband. I'm not necessarily going to change physicians just because that I learned that my doctor is a lousy dad. But here's the deal. You can't really be a good pastor and blow it at home. A pastor or an elder has to rule his own house well. I mean, does his wife and kids respect his authority? He can't rule them if they don't respect him, and they won't respect him if he's not respectable. Sometimes people ask, how's your church going? I say, well, my wife still comes. (laughs) That's no small statement after you've been doing it for 30 years. Years ago, it dawned on me that most church members are fickle. I hate to tell you that, but they are. They'll leave one church for another church at the drop of a hat for the pettiest of reasons. And yet at the end of the day, my wife and kids are still going to be my wife and kids. And that's why a pastor should never sacrifice his own family on the altar of ministry. A pastor needs to rule his house well and have his kids in submission. But that doesn't mean that he's going to have perfect kids. I know you see Zach and you think, man, that guy's perfect, but... It's the exception rather than the rule. No, a pastor's kids aren't going to be perfect kids. A pastor's kid is still a kid. He's going to pull some boneheaded stunts. Notice I said he, not she. He's going to pull some boneheaded stunts just like your kids. You see, it's not whether a pastor's kids are going to rebel. They're sinners. They're going to rebel. It's a given. No, it's how the pastor or elder responds in the wake of their rebellion. 
Does he address it wisely? Does he stand for truth and grace? And it's amazing how a man's management of his own home reflects how he'll manage God's household. Paul adds this. He says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You know, I'm often struck with the similarities between being a pastor and being a parent. With both, you have to love and yet lead. You have to be firm, but you have to be feeling. Both call for an abundance of faith in God. Both require genuineness and humility. Both require a fine touch. Sometimes you have to come down hard. Other times you need to show grace. You see, the church is nothing more than a large family. So why would we give a man charge of God's family if he can't succeed with his own family? Paul says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And then in verse 6 he continues, not a novice lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now you see, the devil, he has this trap. He has a snare that he's used on many a leader. And here's how it works. He fuels the man's pride. Then he puts him up on a pedestal. Then he knocks the pedestal out from under him. And then he buries him in a mound of guilt. And the person most vulnerable to pride is the newbie, the novice. Give a new Christian too much too soon and it inflates the gray matter. It goes straight to the frontal lobe. Baby Christians need time to grow up. Rush a man into ministry before he's ready and you'll stun his growth or worse, you'll wreck his faith. This is why baseball players don't jump from the amateur ranks straight to the majors. There's so many nuances in baseball that it takes time to master the game. That's why there's A ball and then double A and then triple A. You bring a prospect along slowly. And the same is true with ministry. It too is laced with nuances that take time to understand. Don't be overly impressed by a new believer's talent and skill. Only after they've learned to follow and serve, then can they lead. And then verse 8, likewise deacons. Once there was a pastor and a deacon, they went deer hunting together. And when they arrived at their usual spot, they saw a no trespassing sign. Well, the pastor suggested they try old man Jones's farm just down the road. The deacon balked. He said, man, that's, a, that's an ornery cuss, that old man Jones. You sure you want to try to deal with him? pastor said, don't worry, I'll handle him. And so the pastor went to the door while the deacon stayed back in the truck. And surprisingly, Farmer Jones, he was more than happy to see the pastor. As a matter of fact, he said he was his favorite pastor. They could hunt, he and the deacon could hunt on his land anytime they wanted but he did ask the pastor for a favor. Right before he went back to his truck, he said, Pastor, there's an old horse of mine right down by the barn. And it needs to be put out of its misery, but I just can't do it. I love that old horse. Do you think you could shoot the horse on your way out to hunt the deer? He said, sure, no problem. Well, as he's walking back to the truck, he's thinking, man, I can pull a joke on the deacon. 
And so he goes back to the truck. He stomps back. He swings open the door. He rips his shotgun off the gun rack. He spins around and he says, how dare that man talk to me that way? He aims right at that old horse and goes, blam. Then all of a sudden he hears, blam, blam. He turns around and there the deacon is. Smoke coming out the end of the barrel of his shotgun. He shouts to the pastor. He says, preacher, you got his horse and I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. You know, elders and deacons, they they make for an interesting combination when they get together. Elders look after the spiritual needs of the flock. Deacons oversee the physical needs. You know, the Greek word translated deacon means servant. Elder is a role of authority. Deacon is a post for service. Thus, deacons are called designated doers. At least that's what we call them around here. In Acts chapter 14, the elders were chosen by Paul in the existing elders, while in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by the congregation themselves. This is the model that we follow. Myself and the current elders, we pray and we choose new elders while you, the church family, selects our deacons. And these decisions are crucial. Your role in this is crucial. Don't forget, the trajectory of a church is determined by the vision of the people who lead. That's why it gives us qualifications for deacons. Verse 8, likewise deacons must be reverent or serious about the things of God. Yes, they handle practical tasks, but they should do it in a spiritual way. They're not double-tongued. In other words, they don't speak out of both sides of their mouth. Their word is their bond. A deacon delivers what he promises. A deacon is not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. A deacon does nothing to diminish the beauty of God's church. He has faith and he has a clean conscience. And that's why Paul makes a statement about the deacons that apparently went without saying in regards to the elders. He says, let these also first be tested. This is wisdom here. Leaders should be proven before they're appointed. You should take your time. You should observe. You should watch a man's life. You should let the brother show his mettle. Then, Paul says, let him serve as a deacon, being found blameless. Verse 11, likewise their wives. And here's an example of how versions of the Bible tend to mix a little interpretation in with their translation. The Greek text literally reads, likewise the women. But the King James translators assume that Paul was speaking of the deacon's wife. He may have been, but... You see, other passages suggest that there were a female order of deacons in the early church. Romans 16 verse 1 calls Phoebe a servant of the church. The word servant there is the word deacon. Our church has deaconesses. Sisters who serve the needs of other women. They bring a feminine touch to the ministry, and they're good for the church. I like J. Vernon McGee's observation on this passage. He suggested the reason women today are clamoring for roles in the church that are reserved for men is because they've been denied their own rightful role, that of a deaconess. Whether these verses speak of a deacon's wife or a deaconess, either way, she must be reverent, not slanderers. The word slanderer and the word devil are actually the same word in the Greek. Slanderer means devil. 
Here it's in the feminine gender. It would literally be translated she-devils. These women shouldn't be she-devils. And man, you let a she-devil get loose in the church. And a she-devil can cause all kinds of damage. The carnage runs rampant. Let her tongue get loose in the church. Great damage can be caused. This is why we need a zero tolerance toward gossip. When you see somebody gossiping in the church, I hope you're quick and you're bold to douse that gossip. We need to, we need to quench it. Now, these ladies should also be temperate. Faithful in all things, Paul says. Once there was a mom, she was having her morning devotions there with a cup of coffee. She had her Bible out having her devotions. The phone rang and her four-year-old daughter answered. The mother overheard her little girl say, Can my mom call you back? She's having her emotions right now. Well, women in leadership should keep their emotions in check. Paul reverts back to deacons in verse 12. He says, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Again, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't try to export it. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Good deacons are men and women who have sweated on behalf of the saints. These servants are much loved and appreciated in God's household. In the new year, we're going to be selecting deacons here at Calvary Chapel. It's a serious work. It's a good business, and, and we encourage you to be a part of it. Uh, we're all going to need to choose well. Well, we're right back to where we started. Why is God so choosy about who he has lead the church? It's because the church is so strategic. Paul tells Timothy, verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is God's family. It's his house. It's a living organism. It's the sole custodian of God's word and truth. The church is a big deal, and it should be a bigger deal to us. And then he writes, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. It's like this beautiful, charming, mysterious woman. The Christian faith has the mystique of a woman. It's, it's an enchanting mystique. It holds us in its web. Christianity keeps luring us back. Nobody can figure out all the mysteries of God. That's why it requires faith. And the more you get to know about Christ, the more you realize there is to know. As Pascal put it, I love God because I know Him. I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. And in these final verses, Paul accents the gospel's mystique. He says, God was manifested in the flesh. Imagine this. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The gospel begins with wonder. Jesus was justified in the spirit. He also worked wonders, but not of his own hand. His miracles were confirmation that God's spirit was upon him. And then he was seen by angels. At times, angels assisted Jesus. But what's more amazing is that for the 30-plus years Jesus walked the earth, every angel in the cosmos stopped in their tracks and gazed at his every move. He was seen by angels. And Jesus was preached 
among the Gentiles. What an unexpected twist. The Bible was written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, with Jewish salvation in view. And yet almost immediately, the king of the Jews was preached to the Gentiles and then believed on in the world. A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown is now Lord in every corner of the planet. Imagine that. And then he was received up into glory. What began so inconspicuously in the backwoods town of Nazareth, in a Bethlehem stable, now has crescendoed in the clouds. God shows up in the womb of a virgin, and he goes up into glory from a hilltop outside Jerusalem. From arrival to ascension, great is this mystery. Years ago, my dad and I, we were out playing golf when a man about my dad's age joined us. This fellow asked dad, he said, what do your sons do for a living? <laughs> my dad replied, ah, they're both pastors. He said, wow, I bet you're proud of your boys. And I'll never forget my dad's response. He thought for a minute and then he said, so far. So far. I heard that. That fits. I try that on. You see, this is why character is like a Jiffy Lube inspection. It has to be checked and serviced regularly. A character that goes unattended will break down. Great is the mystery of godliness. And godly must be the folks who guard it. Character does count. Let's pray for people in our church who lead that they will pass inspection.